If you would please take your Bibles and open to the book of James, chapter 1. Book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. We've been studying the matter, the doctrine of original sin, and I'm convinced that this is a topic that is much needed, though I have wondered at times. Um, circumstances in our history point to a need for it beyond beyond the fact that it is, in fact, the truth found in Scripture. A part of that importance is seen in how we define or understand terms based on our view of human nature, and by extension, how we view our fellow human beings. The result being that the current view that we find around us today, and the understanding of many, if not most, represents a world or a situation, a condition not in need of grace. Our definitions, those from the surrounding culture, tend to lack an adequate understanding of human nature, including the reality of original sin. We could, in fact, fix this. We could remedy this if we would realize that we have put on the margins the centrality of love that which we learn from the Trinity, the love that is sustained between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if, in fact, we would bring back to the center of things the grace of God, which we are to reflect in our lives. The result being is that we tend to read Scripture and we say, oh, I know what that word means, but the definition we have is not from Scripture, it is from the surrounding culture. And thus, in the words of Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride, if you're familiar with it, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I think this is so true of Christianity today. People keep using words. They're from Scripture. But the way that they define them, the way that they understand them, is not from Scripture, but from the surrounding culture. This would be another lengthy series if we were to look into this. But what I would have us do today is to consider two specific terms that are found in Scripture that have been redefined or reworked to fit into the modern mindset. And in many ways liberates one, I put liberates in quotation mark, from the truth of the Christian faith. So one can say, oh, I am a Christian because this, I, I use these words. But in fact, you're not using them as scripture uses them. The first one ties us in with the sermon last week, and that word is temptation. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's warning to the Corinthians, who, like so many today, I suspect, believed that they were beyond the power of temptation, in part because they did not understand that we still have sin dwelling in us. We have been set free from original sin. Christ has cured us, but the symptoms are still there. But I think in part also because they had redefined what was sin or sinful. And so they began to do things that were in fact sinful, quite wrong, if you looked at scripture. They didn't have any sense at all that what they were doing was wrong. We see this particularly in 1 Corinthians 5 where a man is sleeping with his stepmother and everyone thinks that this is great. It should be a warning to us as well as a comfort when Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The key being that God is faithful. But something else that we tend to overlook, and that is twice Paul speaks of the fact that we are to endure. We are to endure. We don't simply say, God will deliver me and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to exert any effort. No, he will in fact provide a way out so that we can endure. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can endure. So we are in fact supposed to endure. But how do we define temptation? Uh, How do we see temptation or what it means to be tempted? The book of James is believed to be the first book of the New Testament that was written. It's the earliest, certainly, of all the epistles. And this is what we find in James chapter 1, if you look at beginning of verse number 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full full grown, gives birth to death. Now, if you look, we start at verse number 13, but if you look at verse number 12, uh, um, James writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And then in verse 13, he talks about being tempted. So trial in verse 12, tempt in verse number 13. Um, But they both come from the same root word. And I would argue that what James is telling us is that trial refers to an outward circumstance, whereas temptation speaks to something that is an inner enticement to sin. What is James talking about? What, what, What is the connection? The reality is that the very same circumstances can be on the one hand a trial as well as a temptation. The trial gives us the opportunity to go forward, to trust God, to obey him. The temptation is to go back to the old ways, to do things the way we used to do. So every trial is, in fact, also a temptation. And James isn't playing with us. He isn't playing words, word games with us. What he is telling us is that trials are a way that we are to go through these things and that we will, in fact, go to maturity, we will mature and receive the crown. We're not able to do this in our own strength. Can't do this in our own power. Um, But we need to recognize something else, and that is that there is something within us. There is, if you wish, a fifth column. There are enemies within us that make us or try to make us do what in fact we should not do. They in fact try to turn the trial into a temptation. So when the trial comes, we have to make a decision. Will we go with God or will we go with ourselves? There's a voice in us that is speaking to us. That, the question is, where does the voice come from? James wants to make it clear it does not come from God. This is something we need to hear because it is far too easy for us to blame others. And I think this is where we really go off track when it comes to the matter of temptation. We tend to see temptation as something that is something that somebody else is doing to me. They are tempting me. 
And we fail to recognize that part of that may be true, but the reality is there's something within us that is an ally with that force or that person outside of us. So, and this goes all the way back to Eden. What did Adam say when God asked him about what he did? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit. God, it's your fault. You put the woman and it's her fault because she's the one who gave me something to eat. But James says we cannot blame God because God cannot be tempted by evil. James tells us a lot more about God in this section, I think, than we would have expected. In talking about temptation, we want to talk about ourselves because that's what we do as human beings. It's all about us. We're the center of the universe. But no, we learn that God is a giving God. He is a holy God. So much so that he cannot be tempted to do wrong. Neither does he try to tempt us. This is not God's nature. There's, God is so holy that there is no room or motive, will or deed, that would bring disaster on his people. He does bring trials. And let's be clear about that. He does seek to test us. This is the way that we grow. This is the way that we mature. One could even say that he never gives a gift without bringing with it a set of trials that will test the use of our gifts. So he gave Solomon wisdom, gave him great wealth. Um, In essence, it was a test. And we see, in fact, that Solomon failed the test. Another example is Israel. God gave them their own land, the promised land. He gave them... um, Protection as they went through the wilderness. But they were to be tested to see if they would be faithful to God. And we see that time after time they were not. God isn't trying to trip us up. Let's be clear about that. He tests us so that we can pass the test. So that we can in fact grow and inherit the blessing. So if the voice doesn't come from God, where does it come from? Well, it comes from within. It comes from us. The tempting voice is that of our own sinful nature. We want to blame others. We want to point the finger at others. The reality is it begins with us. We hear this, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we should hear it. I think oftentimes it goes by us. Um, Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In a society where one might, in fact, be tempted, or if not tempted, in fact, put the blame on the woman, it's her fault. She made me lust after her. Jesus says, not at all. You are the one who is guilty. You are the one who has lusted. The divine nature is transparent. It's holy. Uh, Human nature, because of original sin, what begins as a desire in fact, goes down the wrong path and leads to sin and death. In our text today, uh, in the King James, it uses the word lust. And here in uh, the NIV, it says evil desire. Um, I think I prefer the ESV here. It says his own desire. It's a neutral term. It isn't like, ooh, there's something evil. It's you have a desire and there is something within you that wants that desire to be twisted and to go down the wrong path. It is the pollution in our own hearts. That's the voice that we hear. This is the danger of sin. This is when temptation comes into our... This is where desire, which is not necessarily wrong, becomes deadly. 
So in verse number 12, we see that we can have a trial. There's endurance. There is perseverance. There's life. But now he tells us with the temptation can lead to desire, sin, and death. God told Adam that the day that he ate from the tree, he would surely die. And we've seen this many times, that there are many types of death. There is spiritual death where we are separated from God. There is social death where we are separated from one another. Psychological death, we're separated within ourselves. There's ecological death. We are separated from creation. It resists our efforts. But the one that comes to mind is physical death, where the soul leaves the body. But there's something else here. It is possible to have continued existence, Adam and Eve did even after they sinned, but now in a changed state, in an abnormal state. Separated from God, they still have lives, they still live. And in some way that we do not understand, he is still in their lives, but not as he intended We are separated from one another. We may be, but we still live together. Um, Within ourselves, there's a division that we don't always understand what's going on with us, and yet we live with ourselves. I think this is the death that James has in mind, that yes, you're still living and breathing, you're still walking, you go to work, all these things, but something's not right. Something's not right. You are in a state of abnormality. And when desire leads to temptation and to death, then we know that something in fact is wrong. The NIV has verse 16 as starting a new paragraph. But remember the verses and the chapter divisions are not there originally. Verse number 16, James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers where we might be tempted to blame others, to either blame God or the devil, uh, James makes no mention of them. To blame external factors, situations, James makes no mention of them as possible excuses. See, I would argue if there was no devil, if there were no Satan, there would still be wickedness. If all our circumstances were pleasant and wonderful, human nature would still be evil. The enemy is not only within the camp, within the heart, the enemy is the heart itself. Don't be deceived, James tells him. By the way, you'll notice that he refers to them as my dear brothers. Then James points to a gracious and generous father. In the face of these trials, we might lose hope. We might wonder, What should I do? I I can't face this situation. I don't know what to do or I don't have the strength to do what I know I should do. Well, we should ask a giving father. If you look at verse number 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You'll notice here that God is called father. He's the father of heavenly lights. What could he mean by the Father of Heavenly Lights? Well, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God, who said, let there be light or let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we are faced with trials that could in fact go the way of temptations, we should in fact look to our Father, the Father of lights, the one who said so long ago, let there be light, and the one who at some point in our lives said to us, let there be light, and he opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And why did he do this? Because of his great love for us. But again, I don't think love comes into our mind when we're thinking of temptation. The second term that I think has been abused, if you wish, redefined in our time, is the word freedom. And I've spoken at length about this, but I just want to remind you of some things that we've looked at. I think this is the issue of our time in the minds of many. But we need to ask ourselves, what is freedom? Um, One author notes that the modern person feels himself to be disengaged from the world around him rather than intrinsically related to it by family, tribe, birthplace, vocation, and so forth. He's expected to forge his own destiny by an exercise of choice. He is concerned less with what is right than what his rights are. Or rather, he grounds the former on the latter. That is, what is right is based on his rights. The world for him is a neutral space for his action, his free choice. And the greatest mysteries lie not outside but within himself. We live in a world in which freedom is in fact considered the highest value. It has been redefined. It is seen as the absence of restraint. Freedom is, you're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do. It is freedom from obligation. In my lifetime, the world has changed quite dramatically. The basic change is this, that personal choice is seen as the way to be fulfilled as a human being. That if you you make choices, this affirms you as a human being. This fulfills you as a person. And we might say, no, 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 that's that's not right. That's not quite right. Um, We are influenced at influenced by this, like it or not. It also affects how we read scripture. It affects how we view freedom as it is found in scripture. Let me just ask you, you know, it's easy for us to say freedom is not the highest value, but how important is freedom to the gospel? You may remember the first time that Jesus spoke after he was in the wilderness and after his baptism, he spoke in his hometown synagogue. And he read a passage from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. This is the heart of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. In writing to the Galatians, Paul describes what Jesus has done. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's pretty important. We can't just say, well, let's not talk about freedom because the way people have redefined it, it's, it's really messed up. And so let's, let's just not talk about it at all. I don't think we can do that. Freedom is mentioned twice in the book of James. The first is here in chapter 1. If you look at verse number 25, 
But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And then in chapter 2, verse number 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You'll notice that in both verses, James puts freedom and law together. The perfect law that gives freedom, the law that gives freedom. And I think this presents a lot of problems for us as we live in this, in, at this point in history. Um, law seems to be the opposite of freedom. Law tells you what you cannot do. It limits you. It tells you what you can do, but it seems to set boundaries and parameters. And I thought freedom is, I can do whatever I want. That there are no rules, there are no obligations. Well, if you go to chapter 1 again, let's begin reading in verse number 22. This is the context to his first mention of freedom. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Here, James tells us what we should not be like and what we should be like. We shouldn't be like someone who listens. One might even say, reads scripture, but then in fact doesn't do what it says. And the analogy is of a person who looks in the mirror and I don't know if they're looking at their hair or their makeup or whatever and they want to see if things are straight and then they leave and as soon as they've left they're like is my hair straight or is my makeup on right they they have forgotten what they just saw in the mirror now he's not just talking about a glance by the way he's talking about looking carefully spending time looking at in the mirror and then forgetting in fact what you have seen um No, this is not what we're supposed to be like. We're not supposed to be like someone who hears scripture, who reads scripture, and then doesn't do what it says and promptly forgets, in fact, what he or she has heard or read. We are, in fact, to do what it says. So we should be like the person who doesn't forget what he or she has heard. He or she does what is commanded, what has been spelled out, what it teaches us to do. And again, the analogy is someone who looks in the mirror intently and, re- and recognizes, you know, this is who I, he sees his or her reflection. Um, that's the way we're supposed to be. We look at scripture and we see what it is we are supposed to do. I don't know if you noticed, but in verses 22 to 24, um, he uses the word, well, he uses, he speaks of the word, meaning scripture, Okay. So uh, do not merely listen to the word, anyone who listens to the word. But then in verse number 25, he shifts and he doesn't talk about the word, which I think he could. He speaks of the law, the perfect law. Why the shift? Is he just sort of playing with words or is like, oh, I, I kept repeating myself. I need to do something else. No, law defines freedom. It is with the law that we know what it is we can do and what we cannot or we should not do. We need to understand that God's law is perfect. 
it expresses who he is. God himself is holy. Um, but it also perfectly matches what we are supposed to do as human beings. This God made us. If you wish, he is the manufacturer. We are his creatures. He knows how we are supposed to live, what is best for us. Now, if in fact we decide not to do that, that's possible, but that's not what God intended. And that's not freedom. Okay, That is disobedience, but it's not freedom. In the law, God has told us the truth about himself, but he's also told us the truth about ourselves. In Leviticus um, 19, I'll just mention this one particular passage. We have a series of commands, and God keeps saying, I am the Lord. This is who I am. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother mother and father. You must observe your Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The law tells us who God is. And this is truly important. Because we're made in his image. We are a reflection of him. So if we know who he is, then we'll have a better sense of what we should be. Stop and think about the law. When God gave the law to Moses, what was that all about? What's the backstory to that? Well, you have a people, a large number of people, 600,000, who for centuries have been slaves. They have not been free. Okay? They've been enslaved. Now they are free. But what does that mean? If you go from being a slave to being freed, how are you supposed to act? As a slave, I know how I'm supposed to act because if I don't act correctly, I'll get beaten. Okay? I'm given an assignment. I'm supposed to perform that assignment. But now that I'm free, what am I supposed to do? God gives the law to his people so that they will know how to live as free people. This is how free people live. Not crazy people who just sort of run around helter-skelter. No, this is the way free people live. And so it is God's perfect law that gives freedom. He shows us, in fact, how we're supposed to act. True freedom is, in fact, God giving us the opportunity, the ability to express who we are as those made in his image. We are truly free when we live the life appropriate to those who bear God's image. And to be free is to realize your inmost nature. This is who God made you to be and to give the fullest expression to it. Freedom is not choice. That's what we hear around us. And so when we read scripture and we read about freedom, we're like, oh, I get to choose. I can choose whatever I want. Freedom is not choice. Freedom is, in fact, living within the boundaries, the law that God has given us. Ultimately, freedom is choosing wisely based on what God has revealed. Sin enslaves us. God's grace frees us. And the law tells us how we are supposed to live. 
the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ liberates us to be who we are supposed to be. And the call to love isn't simply a rule or a commandment. It is an expression of who God is and how we are to reflect that. I don't know that we think that way. Because we have redefined freedom or we have allowed the surrounding culture to redefine it to be simply a matter of choice. That freedom is choice. And it is so much more than that. In our day, the quest for freedom is seen as, I think, the highest quest. One could make the case that the early Christians fell into the same trap. The gospel comes. It's proclaiming freedom, the good news, that Christ has died to set you free. And for some of the early Christians, they thought, oh, this means I can do whatever I want. And so the apostles have to address this. Uh, Peter wrote in his first epistle, Live as free people. Okay, so far so good. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Wait a minute, Peter. You said we're free. And now you're telling us we're slaves. We are God's people. He has given us his law. This is how we're supposed to live. Paul writes to the Romans in uh, chapter 6. You have been set free from sin. Again, this is the wonderful news of the gospel. And have become slaves to righteousness. Wait, wait, wait. So I've given up one slavery for another? Yes. Because the one is contrary to what is best for you. And the second one is that which the creator, the one who made you, this is how he tells you to live. And if you do this, you will in fact be the person that God intends for you to be. Later in the same chapter, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. But that's not how people see freedom today. The analogy that kept coming to mind this past week as I was thinking this through is basketball. Uh, Big Lakers fan and the season starts this week. We're very excited, all these things that are going to happen. There are rules to basketball, aren't there? You don't necessarily have to have a regulation size court. Uh, hopefully the rim is the 18 inches in diameter and it's 10 feet high, but that's not always possible. But you do have a basketball. It's supposed to be uh, 20 pounds of air and all that. Um, these things aren't always possible, but there are some basic things. The goal is for one team to put the ball in the basket and for the other team to prevent that from happening. And if they get the ball back, then they in fact try to do the same thing. There are, if you wish, rules. In the world in which we live today, I think the dimensions would mean nothing in basketball. There would be no boundaries, no out of bounds. Just you could be a block away and still be in bounds. And the basketball itself might be unnecessary, or the rim, or the backboard. And that's fine. What you have is chaos, but it's certainly not basketball. I would argue that in the same way people want to play the game of life, I don't know that that's a good expression, but we'll go with it, to play the game of life, but not to follow the rules, not follow the law of God. Now to tie this in with original sin, it isn't simply because of original sin that there are rules. Adam had rules. 
Adam had boundaries. He was told what to do and what he could not do. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The boundaries are in fact a reflection of God's character. God made us. He knows what is best for us. So we are to live within those boundaries. Even if we were without sin, there would still be boundaries. But in the light of original sin, we must recognize that true freedom isn't doing whatever you want to do. It is living within God's law. In the last quarter of the 18th century, there were two major revolutions, political revolutions. One in this country, 1776, 1789 in France. Both of them revolved around the idea of liberty. Liberty was incredibly important in both of these revolutions. One of them resulted in a bloodbath that came to be known as the Reign of Terror. The other did not. And what was the difference between the two? I am an American, so one would say I am biased, but in fact the American Revolution and the events that followed it had a basic recognition that people are sinners. There need to be checks and balances. You cannot give ultimate, you can't give complete power to one group of people or to one person. Freedom came to be recognized as living within the laws of having a certain allegiance to the republic, if you wish, uh, but living within boundaries. I would suggest to you that people have completely forgotten that. And the church has as well. Because we keep using these words, I don't think we know what these words mean. Because we're allowing unbelievers, we're allowing the surrounding culture to define these things for us. Consider the present political chaos. We have an election coming up in a few weeks. I think one of the problems is the view of freedom. It doesn't include a view of the fact that we are all fatally flawed. It's the great equalizer, original sin. We are all sinners. And in a sense, we are all suspect. And so are our consciences. I'm sure you've heard this, but... I I sort of clench up every time I hear someone advising someone. They say, follow your heart. I must tell you that would be the worst piece of advice you could ever give me. Because the reality is that I am deeply flawed. I am a sinner. And my heart is all about me. It isn't motivated by love. It isn't guided by grace. And apart from the grace of God... I I tremble to think what kind of person I would be. We need to ask ourselves today as God's people, do we or do we not believe that people are blind, deaf, and dead in sin and that only God can save them? Not an election, not a politician, not a political system, Only God can. And perhaps we need to back up a bit because we get so worked up when we talk about political matters. We need to recognize the fatal flaws in people's conversations today 
And we should name them for what they are. They are heresy, they are contrary to God's word, and they are idolatry. It's a new form of idolatry that we find around us. But above this, we have marginalized that we are made in the image of God, so are our fellow human beings. By the way, this is not new in this generation, but one thing I've noticed is that oftentimes if you want to belittle another person, you refer to them as some lower form of life, as an animal or something like that, rather than recognizing them as bearing the image of God. Through Adam, sin and death have come on the whole human race, and we are now all equally destined to die. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the love of God demonstrated and we hear the grace of God as lived out in our lives. It is in the incarnation that we come to find out what temptation really is. It's in the incarnation we come to find out what freedom is because he came to set us free. Do we keep using these words, but we don't really know what they mean? May God open our eyes to see the truth of his love and his grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live where we do, when we do, because you put us here. We are your people in this place at this time. And though we might desire to be in another place in another time, when things perhaps seemed easier, here we are. You've put us here. We are to live lives of freedom based on the law, the perfect law that gives freedom. We are to follow you. When trials come our way, may we by your grace do what is right recognizing that there is in fact a voice within us that wants to tell us or tells us to do what is wrong. The call of a Christian is not to an easy life. It is to a life oftentimes of trials, but trials through which and by which we can grow and mature. But if we rest in ourselves, we see ourselves as self-sufficient, I can handle this, then we in fact may go the way of death and live a life of abnormality. The temptation, I think, is to overreact when we hear these words used in our society. Temptation to point the finger to someone else, at someone else, and to blame them for tempting us. To see freedom as getting to do what we want. We've lost sight of love, your love for us, and the grace you've shown to us day after day. Father, by your spirit, spirit, help us to think these things through. And as James tells us, not to be hearers only, but doers as well. Help us to recognize in ourselves how flawed we are. That whatever good comes from us, it's you working through us. 
Again, may we think on these things. We pray for Robert, who's not with us today, that you would touch him and raise him up. We thank you for Pastor Andrew being released. And we thank you for Tess and Jesse and the birthdays, the years you've given them. Give thanks for God, a generous and giving Father, who has given us every good and perfect gift. We thank you for your love and your grace. May they go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.